I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. And our text for today will be on page 520 in those Bibles. But I encourage you to follow along as we study this book of the Bible. We are studying Ecclesiastes together as a church this spring, and we're covering roughly one chapter per week. And the author of this book is doing something that we all do. That is, he is searching for meaning in this world. And he's looking to wealth, work, recreation, notoriety, you name it, for meaning and purpose. And as he goes, he's documenting his journey. His autobiography, his journey, his notes, his observations are recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the key word of the book is a Hebrew word. You may know it by now, hevel. Hevel. All is hevel, the preacher says in chapter 1. That is, the things of this world are a mist. They're fleeting. They're elusive. Just when you think you have a grip on life, it eludes you. And the sober warning for us that we've seen already in this book is that if you seek to build your life on hevel, you'll be driven to despair. The things of this world aren't solid. The things of this world are fleeting. Jesus would say the things of this world are where moth and rust destroy. It's all fleeting hevel. And as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning, the preacher is going to address two massive subjects, and I mean massive subjects, worship and wealth. Worship and wealth. I want to raise a need this morning before we look at the text just to show you how pervasive these two issues are in our world and, I would argue, in your own hearts. Here's what we must realize. All of us are worshipers, and we are among the wealthiest people alive and to have ever lived. Let me say that again. All of us are worshipers, and we are among the wealthiest people alive and to have ever lived. Concerning worship, Archbishop William Temple said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. You say, well, I'm not a big church goer. I'm not very religious. Well, look at your checkbook. What do you do with your recreation, your solitude? We would say that is worship, giving your affection to something. We all do it. Tim Keller, preacher and apologist, says this, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. Worship concerns all of life. It's not merely a few songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. Worship goes with you throughout the week. It deals with your affections, your desires, your thoughts, your actions. Worship is a whole heart devotion. And because of this, all of us are worshipers. That's not the question. The question is, what demands your attention? What demands your allegiance? What do you worship? The question is whether our worship is reserved for creator God, that is true worship, or if we worship other things. Scripture calls that idolatry. This is the matter of worship that the preacher will address. But not only worship, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5 will address the issue of wealth. And some of you say, have you looked at my bank account? It's not rich. It's not wealthy. Then you may say, <laughs> glory to God, brother. You, then, then you may say, he deals with money, the issue of money. Um, 
I've met some really ungenerous, stingy people that don't have a lot of money. The issue is not how much money you have, but how you view money. He deals with wealth. And I was struck, I was reading a book last year um, by Tony Ranke called God, Technology, and the Christian Life. And to drive home this point of uh, our generation, these people being among the wealthiest people to have ever lived, uh, I want to read an excerpt from this book. It's really compelling, the issue of wealth. Here's what Ranke says. In 2016, economist and professor Donald Boudreaux gave his students an ultimatum. Continue living out their present mediocre lives or trade them for the life of America's first billionaire in 1916. That is John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller's $1 billion net worth in 1916 is the equivalent today of $23 billion. That's more money than any of us could ever spend in a lifetime. And this experiment says all of it can be yours if you would just trade places with Rockefeller in 1916. Ranke goes on to say, with this much wealth, you could own large homes all over the country. You could have your own private island. But keep in mind, in 1916, there were no private jets. Getting to each home would require traveling for days in a private rail car without air conditioning. You could enjoy AC in your homes, but nowhere else. Not in banks or stores or the office or your friend's homes. Your chauffeur could drive you across cities in an early coupe or limo, but the ride would be slow and really uncomfortable. Roads were rough. Mechanical breakdowns plagued even the most basic commutes. Your home would have electricity in 1916, but there wasn't a lot to do with the power. Beyond lamps and toasters, very few household appliances were available. No radio stations, no televisions. You'd have a nice record collection, but it would all be scratchy mono. Think about pharmacology and medical procedures. They were rudimentary at best. Antibiotics were not available, not even for you. A small infection would threaten your life. One in ten babies died in the first year, a statistic that would apply to the children born to your wife and your daughters. Dental procedures couldn't save your teeth, dentures would be inevitable, and there were no contact lenses. So, you want to trade places with billionaire John D. Rockefeller in 1916? Well, here's what the economist said. Honestly, I wouldn't be remotely tempted to quit the 2016 me so that I could be a $1 billion richer me in 1916. Hear this out. Here's here's his findings. In contrasting the comforts Nearly every middle-class American today is richer than was America's richest man 100 years ago. I want want you to catch that. Most ordinary Americans today are richer than America's first billionaire 100 years ago. Now I speak to that to raise an issue. I come back to what I said earlier. All of us are worshipers. All of us are worshipers. And you, sitting here today, are among the wealthiest who have ever lived and the wealthiest alive relative to the rest of the world today. I raise this issue because Scripture is timeless and eternal. And I raise this issue to say, we need the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 5 to live a godly life. We need God's wisdom in the areas of worship and wealth. Please follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should, you, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase... They increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. A brief summary to go along with our passage this morning. It's from Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we'll follow along as the preacher instructs us concerning worship and concerning wealth. Let's begin in verses 1 through 7 where the preacher addresses instruction and wisdom for worship. I want you to notice that in chapters 1 through 4, the preacher mostly dealt in observation. He looked out into the world and wrote about what he saw. But now in chapter 5, the preacher moves from observation to instruction. In fact, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, there are eight imperatives, eight instructions, eight commands that he gives. And we're going to look at just two of them this morning concerning worship. The first is in verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Look at the house of God here is the temple in Jerusalem. He's writing, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He's dealing with worship. And you may wonder, what does worship have to do with the, the Hevel and all of the case studies that we've examined in chapters 1 through 4 so far? Well, Matthew Henry's helpful in this. He says this, the preacher prescribes worship as a remedy against all the vanities which he has already observed in chapters 1 through 4. 
In other words, if you have followed along with the preacher so far and, and you recognize that the things of this world, wealth and notoriety and innovation and ingenuity, if you think that's all just hevel and you're tired of it, the preacher says, I have a better way. Worship the one true God. No hevel, all substance. So it's very natural that he goes to address worship. Guard your steps. I want to spend some time here this morning. Guard your steps. Give heed to how you worship. Two reasons why we ought to guard our steps as we go to approach the living God. The first reason is this. God is holy. God is holy. This is a massive theme that spans Old and New Testament alike. In fact, in Isaiah and Revelation, we're told that God is holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God. You can't emphasize it any further than that. This is who he is, and his holiness pervades all of his being. When we speak of God's holiness, we speak of his perfection and his power. If you'd study church history, you know that most of the theologians wrote and preached in Latin. And in Latin, the theologians would refer to God as the most perfect being. If you were to translate that from Latin to English, it would literally be God is the perfectest being. The perfectest being. It doesn't really work in English. Look, there, there is no word in our English dictionary that fully grasps the immensity of God's perfection. He is the most perfect, supreme being. He admits to no degrees of perfection. He is, and he is the standard by which we measure all things. God is perfect, but in his holiness, we also underscore his power. You may wish to think of God's power and his holiness like the sun. The sun is so pure and good and life-giving that it is, in fact, dangerous. That is a glimpse of God's holiness. If we want to take this illustration further, uh, before we go out into the sun, what do we do? We apply sunscreen lest we get burned. So with God's holiness, we must prepare our hearts to stand before a holy God. We must, as the preacher says, guard our steps. I want to highlight a verse to you, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 through 17. This is one of the high points in the Old Testament, in my opinion. Um, th this is a chapter on the greatness and weightiness of God. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. Behold... The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Hear this. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah says, look at the Burj Khalifa, look at the Empire State Building, look at the Great Wall of China. In God's perspective, those things are less than nothing. That's his greatness, that's his power, that's his magnificence. This is the God 
we worship. And I will say this to you. When we gather as God's people and we open the word and we sit under the preaching of the word, this God of Isaiah chapter 40, this God of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is present with us in power. This is the God that you come to worship. This is the God who promises to dwell in us, among us, and work through us. So we guard our steps because God is holy. Second, we guard our steps when we come to worship because worship is weighty. Let me say this. There is no more important thing that you will do with your Christian life than worship. Now I hear some of you say, well, what about evangelism? Winning people into the kingdom of God. My friends, don't hear what I'm not saying. We don't disobey certain commands so we can obey others. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples, evangelize the nations. But let me point out to you that when we evangelize, we're simply achieving a means to an end. When we evangelize, we're saying, come and join the worshiping community of God with me. When we're evangelizing, we're saying, I want to see you in heaven one day. The end is worship. We won't be evangelizing in heaven. Here's what we'll be doing, worshiping the triune God. Worship is weighty. It's the most important thing you will do this side of eternity and in the next life. It's eternal. Worship is weighty. And I want to point out to you that God is concerned with how he is worshipped. God is concerned with how he is worshipped. That's why the preacher says, guard your steps. Let me give another illustration. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. The weightiness of worship. This was recorded in the period of Moses and the Exodus. And two priests, uh, the pastors of Israel, if you will, Nadab and Abihu, go to offer sacrifice to the Lord. That's the context. Here's what happens. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and, off and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, who was the father of Nadab and Abihu, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Worship is weighty. That is, as Nadab and Abihu... We're going through their day to day, another day of worship, another day of offering, another day of sacrifice. They misstepped and they went beyond what God had commanded them to do, what God had authorized. And there's no way around this. God struck them dead to show them that worship matters and how you worship matters. You say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. My friends, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied before the Lord as they were giving to the church. God struck them both dead because he says, look, I am holy and I care about how I am worshipped. Worship is weighty. God is holy. So rightfully so, the preacher says, guard your steps, give heed, give thought to how you Worship. The second imperative, we'll spend just a moment on this. Verse 2, preacher goes on to say, Let your words be few. Let your words be few. And just above that, 
It says, here's why you should be careful not to speak too much in worship, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. We are created, God is the creator. It's important to remember, remember our position before the infinitely holy God. And this is in the context of vows and oaths. You know, this was a very common practice in Old Testament Judaism, where essentially worshipers would go to the temple and they would offer an oath or a vow before God, and they would say, God, if you do X for me, then I will do Y for you. God, if you would just get me out of this bind one more time, then I promise I'll live for you. Uh, we certainly do that today. And God's people back then were no different. But the preacher warns us, this vowing and making these oaths and worship will really get us into trouble. And it did because in verse 5, the preacher says, look, it's better that you should not vow at all than that you should vow and not pay. It says, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, regarding oaths and vows, he would say, don't make an oath at all. It says, when you go to worship, just let your character speak for itself. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if our hearts are pure and our character is good, our words can be few as we ponder the goodness of God in worship. Brief word as we conclude on verse 7 here. Talking about how our words should be few in worship. He says, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is hevel. But God is the one you must fear. It says, look, if you're talking a lot, you're just going to be producing a lot of hevel. Listen, it is good, as the psalmist says, to be still and know that he is God. It is good to come in here each Sunday and think about the words you're singing, to give thought to the word of God preached, to reflect and repent when we take communion, to rejoice when we celebrate baptisms, to pray with one another. It is, it is good to do these things. It is good to speak less and listen more as God is present with us in worship. So that's wisdom for worship, but now he transitions to wisdom for wealth. Wisdom for wealth. This is in verses 8 through 17. And the preacher highlights three burdens that accompany wealth and the love of money. Jeremiah Burroughs, he's a Puritan preacher who wrote the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I would commend to all of you. Jeremiah Burroughs says this, many men and women look at the shine and glitter of prosperity, but they little think of the burden. Many men and women look at the shine and glitter of prosperity, but they little think of the burden. Yes, there is a burden that accompanies wealth. And the preacher's going to identify three of those. The first is in verses 8 and 9 where he highlights the burden of corruption. It says, if you see in a province, here's our phrase, the oppression of the poor. The oppression of the poor. It is not their fellow poor people that are oppressing one another. It is a higher up, someone with more wealth, more power, top down, oppressing the poor. If you see that, don't be surprised. He says, this is how things work this side of eternity. In other words, you could say it this way, the higher one climbs on the pay scale, the greater risk he runs of being out of touch with his fellow people. 
This is true. This leads to oppression. You get out of touch with reality. You become corrupt because you love money and think you have a sense of superiority because you have more material possessions than another. And let me just say this. There is no room for this thinking in the kingdom of God. Whether rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, we're all one at the foot of the cross. But yes, the burden of corruption certainly can creep in. Contrast with that, verse 9, but, however, this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. That is a ruler who is not corrupt, a ruler that provides jobs and fields for his people to work and feed their families and contribute to society. This is gain. Yes, with wealth comes the burden of corruption. The second burden the preacher will highlight is in verses 10 through 12. That is the burden of trouble. The burden of trouble. Hear this, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Let me read that again. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's good to think about that. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied. There's always another promotion. There's always another comma to add to the bank account. There's always another hour to be worked. There's always another home to buy. There's always another car to drive. He says, if you love your money plain as day, you're never going to be satisfied. End of verse 10, it's all hevel. John the Apostle in 1 John 2 verse 15 would say it plain as day, don't love the world or the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world, for it will bring with it a host of troubles. Verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When goods or wealth or money increases, they increase who eat them. That is, if you have a lot of money, you're going to have a lot of people coming wanting your money. And really, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Nice house. Can we use it for a community Bible study? No, no, no. This is my, this is my safe place. This is my museum. Nice car. Can we drive it? No, this stays, this stays in the shop. This, this stays here for me to look at. You're not taking it with you. That's what the preacher says. What gain is there but just to look at it this side of eternity? Now, I want you to know that the preacher is not condemning wealth. He himself was wealthy and I want to say this, it is good to work hard and have means to be generous and pass on an inheritance to your children and your children's children. This is good to do, but verse 10 stands, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Do not love money, for you'll never be satisfied with it. I wonder if our issue of contentment and our burden that accompanies money could be solved simply by going to the Lord in prayer and saying, God, thank you that I have enough. God, thank you that I have enough. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't pray or instruct us to pray for some sort of income, for some type of job. He said, daily bread, and with that I'll be content. Perhaps you would heed the words of Christ. Go to the Lord in prayer saying, God, regardless of what's in my account, thank you that I have enough. Thank you that I have enough. The burden of trouble. Thirdly, the burden of danger. The burden of danger. 
Yes, money can be quite dangerous, physically and spiritually, of course. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Dangerous. And those riches, they were lost in a bad venture. And get this, this man was a father of a son. And now he has nothing to give to his son. He loved money so much that he risked it all and lost it all, and now he has nothing to give to his son. Well, this is the story of Wall Street, isn't it? This is the burden of danger. He kept money to his own hurt, thinking I've achieved it, I'm gaining, but really he's hurting himself, and then he lost it all. Burroughs in his book will use this illustration. Tall trees are a great deal more broken than low shrubs. Say, what does that mean? If you have a lot of money, then you're falling from a high place should you fall. But what if you would be content with your lot? What if you would stop saying, I want that person's job. I want that person's house. I I want that income, that job. But instead you say, God, thank you for my daily bread. Thank you for my lot. Thank you that I have enough. Please protect me. Yes, the burden of danger. 1 Timothy, this is Paul's letter to the pastor Timothy, chapter 6, verse 10. It's likely you've heard this verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is dangerous. Jesus would say very clearly, That for the rich, if they wish to inherit the kingdom of God, they're going to do so with more difficulty than those who are poor. That's how powerful of a vice money is. It's dangerous. And that's what the preacher wishes to emphasize as he gives us wisdom for dealing with wealth. The burden of corruption, the burden of trouble, the burden of danger. Perhaps we would say, God, thank you for giving me enough. Thank you for my lot. May I be a good steward of what you've given me. Close with verses 18 through 20. I've simply titled this under the heading, How Then Shall We Live? We have wisdom for worship. We have wisdom for wealth. How should we live with this information? It's one thing to acquire knowledge, but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is hearing and obeying. Wisdom is knowledge put into practice. How then shall we live? The preacher gives two encouragements. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. The first encouragement, how then shall we live? Enjoy life. Enjoy life. Um, Be content with what God has given you. Enjoy it. You're not trying to build your life upon it. You know that doesn't work. The preacher's shown you in chapters one through four, it's all hevel. But the things of life are a gift. Your income's a gift and a tool to be used to glorify God. Man, enjoy the fact that you can come worship. You don't have to 
offer a sacrifice on your behalf for Christ as the perfect spotless lamb sacrifice on your behalf. You have confidence now by the Spirit to enter the most holy of holy places. Enjoy that. Enjoy the privilege living this side of the cross. Enjoy life. Second encouragement, how should we live? Verse 19, accept your lot. Accept your lot. Get to a place of contentment where you realize that if you had more or less money than you do, then you would not make for a God-glorifying person. Understand that God in his providence has allotted you exactly what you have and put you exactly where you are in his infinite wisdom so that you can glorify him the best way you can. Accept your lot. Don't try and change it. For God is in heaven and we are on earth. Enjoy life and accept your lot. This is freeing counsel that produces contentment. Now, as we close, I want to speak a word to those who are living without relation, without regard for God and his son. A word to those who are living apart from Christ. And hear me when I say this. Verses 18 through 20, the counsel of enjoying life and accepting your lot, this is good counsel for God's people, but it is miserable advice if you don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Good counsel for God's people because you have the perspective of the cross, but for those outside of Christ, it will just make you miserable. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Say, what does that mean? It means that there can be no true wisdom apart from first beginning with, building upon the foundation of a relationship with God. You say, well, I'm generally a good person. I'm generally a contented person. I don't love money. I give it away. I'm not particularly religious, but I don't make idols of a bunch of different things either. I'm okay. My friend, that's a lie. Don't believe it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Perhaps you will work your life trying harder and doing better, climbing the ladder of success and pedigree only to find that at the end of your life looking down that the ladder was leaning against the wrong building all along. Friends, without the fear of the Lord, there is no true wisdom. It's folly. It's folly. So what can I do then to be saved? How then can I fear the Lord. This need not be overly complicated. Maybe as simple as A, B, C. Admit that you are a sinner who's fallen short of God's righteous standard. Believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, and rose again three days later to give you new life. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The essence of the gospel. This is true wisdom, fearing God and keeping his commandments. Let's pray.